As you watch the screen, your heart begins to beat faster. There's a fluttering in the pit of your stomach. Your throat is dry. Your palms damp. Suddenly a chill runs down your spine. You clutch the person next to you. You tell yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. But sooner or later, it's time to go Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Ron. And this is our review of Friday the 13th, starring Betsy Palmer, Adrian King, Harry Crosby, Laurie Bartom, Kevin Bacon, Mark Nelson, Robbie Morgan, and Janine Taylor. Directed by Sean S. Cunningham, released in 1980 on a budget of $550,000. It grossed over $59 million in its complete run. You know, totally started the franchise and, uh, Massive hit completely. And I, I think the, one of the things about this that has always struck me is, and I think it's something that's fundamental if you're going to watch Friday the 13th movies that you just sort of have to accept about them along the way, <laughs> is that unlike a lot of these other horror franchises that we've, we've talked about on Filmstrip, you know, me and you and other people too. I mean, you know, Halloween, Hellraiser, uh, heck, even something like Critters and, you know, Leprechaun and stuff like that. They were started with like an idea. Actually, there was something there. This one was started completely with the idea of we want to try to make money off of something scary. Um, okay. And Sean Cunningham made a, made a poster and got people to go, yeah, I'll finance that. And I mean, it's completely made for profit. And I think that's fundamental in understanding this series. I, I also read somewhere that the genesis of this movie, like the idea of it was uh, Sean Cunningham called, uh, I believe the guy's name is Victor Miller, who wrote yeah. the screenplay and said, let's rip off Halloween. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, Victor Miller, and I've seen it in documentaries, says, well, so I just watched Halloween a lot, you know, because I had seen it and thought that was great. And so, well, OK, here are the things I need to do. <laughs> you know, somebody, if they have sex, they got to die. I got to have a lot of knives and, you know, this and, you know, you have to have a killer and you know, a bunch of young people. And, uh, you know, that that was what they came up with. And throwing it at a camp was like, eh, why not? You know, and, and that's how it goes. I think the other things that are staples of these films, like the cheesy acting, pretty people set up to be targets, lots of violent kill effects, and then overbearing music, um, I think are, are definitely parts of these that you cannot go without. Because unlike Halloween and, and some of the other, you know, quote, classic horror films or whatever, this one went for the gusto because somebody introduced Tom Savini to the mix. Oh, yeah. And he does some of his best work here. That arrow through the throat is just is just a top notch kill. Oh no, it's it's fantastic, and the, the action, even the action, the face, but the the machete taken off the head at the end, I think maybe the the crowning moment of all of this. Even if it does look like where's that machete coming from or whatever, like the way they did that was to build a fake head on top of Betsy Palmer, and then he just cut it off on screen, you know, <laughs> and. and uh, um, you know, also the ridiculous use of slow-mo out of nowhere 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> Knowing Tom Savini, though, he was the guy who swung the machete. Oh, no. Yeah, I think they've even said that. They're like, yeah, Tom was the one swinging the machete at the end of it and uh, you know, the gripping of the hands and all that. But, yeah, these things uh, are parts of this series for sure. Now, I kind of want to get your background with, with these because we talked about it before and on other shows. You've seen the Friday the 13th film, so kind of give me your history with these. Oh, um. One summer in college, uh, the local cable company finally realized that we had been getting free cable for about 12 years uh, since we moved into the house that my mom currently lives in. Um, so they were moving everyone to digital cable, so they shut off our cable. But I had friends who had a pretty big horror movie collection, and he said, well, you know, I've got all the Friday the 13th movies on VHS. Why don't you just take those? So I took those and watched them on like a 15-inch TV <laughs> VCR combo because my, my full-size VCR had broken. Uh, <laughs> and I went through and I watched them all in a row. I watched them all in order. I did reviews of each one of them for my late lamented horror movie review website. And, uh, yeah, so that was, uh, one of my, that's one of my many connections to the Friday the 13th, uh, saga. So you had never seen them before college though, right? No, I'd seen them like on TV. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'd never actually sat down and watched them all in a row and I'd never actually paid attention to which one I was actually watching until that moment because they (laughs) all basically kind of blended together. You know, is this the one where Jason's got the bag on his head? No. Is this the one where it's his mom? Maybe. Uh, is this the one where he smashes the the sleeping bag full of girl into the tree? Uh, possibly, you know. <laughs> yeah. I. You know, I, I'll say this. I, I was aware of this series. I, it's hard to not be aware of the pop culture impact this series had because everybody talked about it or whatever. But I didn't see this one until many years later. I think I was in high school finally, and it was like, Similar to you, family friend who had them all on VHS, and we ended up borrowing a couple of them at a time and just kind of watching them. Um, I've only watched the series straight through in a row like once, and that was uh, one of the years AMC had it going. And I, I watched all that, and I've owned the you know all of them for years. I just have never sat down to go. I'm going to marathon these. These were never my go tos. I felt like these were my safe horror films. I don't know that I've ever been scared by a Friday the 13th film in any way. I, well, maybe scared because it was you know horrendously done, but not scared because anything happening was scary, right? Uh, I can tell you the first one I ever saw was the second one, and I saw like part of it on cable or something, but I, I didn't know what I was watching. I didn't get into this one. This one didn't click with me the way Halloween did. And, and if you're listening to our Nightmare on Elm Street podcast, we get into that. I'll talk about how that one, I watched that and Halloween kind of the same weekend. And those were the ones that I just sort of paid attention to, but I was a Halloween guy. So like, I felt like at that point in life, it was, you know, playground. You had to like pick your people, right? You know, mm-hmm. I was definitely, see, I was unpopular because I was team GoBots over the, the Transformers, which was a what? Huge, huge mistake, huge mistake. But <laughs> For I, was, real. I was, yeah, I, I missed on that one, okay? But I li- but I liked GI Joe. All right, so I was all over some of that, and and I thought Cobra was cool, so I was down there. And then I picked Michael Myers was my slasher. You know, I decided that was going to be the one that I just held on to, and I just did. And so I never really paid attention to Jason movies until much later. And then at some point in my adult life, I said, "Well, I I need to watch these." And so I I've watched them all, you know, and, and kind of kept up with them. But it wasn't until you know high school or so that I finally saw this one, this first one, and said, "Oh." 
oh, okay. Well, I see. Cause I think somebody had spoiled it for me at that point. Like, you know, Jason's not in the first one. And then I got to see it and I was like, oh, now I see what everybody's been talking about. But I had no like reference point for this film. So I, of all of these, I know this one the least of any of them. I, I think the first one I saw is everyone's uh, one of the, one of the uh, considered worst of the series. I think the first one I saw was, uh, Jason, uh, takes Manhattan or whatever it part is. Part eight. Yeah. Yeah. Part eight. <laughs> uh, that's the, that's the first one I remember seeing like someone going to the video store, getting it and like watching it at like a friend's birthday party in like sixth grade or something. But that's also the same night that I first saw evil dead too. Oh, wow. So yeah. So that was a, uh, a much superior film though it, made for about as much money. So <laughs> yeah, it, de- it definitely blew, uh, you, you know, it definitely put Friday the 13th in its proper place. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Sam Raimi definitely beat that film at <laughs> that, that time. But now part one here though, the origin story, and that's the funny thing about this too, and I think we'll find as we go in this series, this really isn't the origin story of much of anything. This is just kind of the prologue, I guess, to Friday the thirteenth, because it doesn't really get started until later in the series, which is rare in a horror film. Yeah, it's like a uh, prequel that actually comes first, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Nowadays, like they would, they would have gone back and made this, right? And it would, it would be horrible. But uh, no, this was the first idea was to to do this. And I guess we've got to do the plot summary before we go any further into this. So, Ron, I'm going to kick it to you. Tell us what happens in Friday the Thirteenth. Oh, because it's such a detailed plot. <laughs> well, I, th- I think I wrote more than four sentences, to which my wife said, "That's too much." Camp Crystal Lake has been closed for over 20 years after several unsolved murders. The new owner and several young camp counselors are ready to reopen despite warnings of the property's death curse by locals. The curse proves all too true as one by one, each of the camp counselors is stalked and killed. We finally learn the killer is a woman named Mrs. Voorhees who once worked at the camp. Her son, Jason, drowned while camp counselors were making love, not paying attention, and she enacted her revenge then and again now. She faces off with the one remaining camp counselor, Alice, who finally gets the upper hand and chops off Mrs. Voorhees' head in a spectacular scene. Alice goes for a soothing canoe ride, only to be pulled into the water by a mysterious young boy whom she assumes is Jason. However, the police refute this with her in the hospital, and she wonders if he's still out there waiting for his mother. That's a really good, concise plot summary, I think, and and it goes, it tells enough of what happens. You're not wrong. This is a pretty simple story. People go to a camp that is has had trouble getting going through the years, and trouble comes again. But uh, it's the, you know, there's bound to reopen in spite of every awful thing that's happened there in the past. If I remember correctly, this is actually a real uh, filmed at a real summer camp, like in upstate New York. Yeah, it was, it's in some New Jersey Boy Scout camp, is uh, what they said. They waited for the scouts to go home, and then they went and filmed it. And so, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a real camp. You know, as a former scout and stuff, I, I didn't know until many years later this wasn't filmed in the South. It looked like the camps that we frequented often. I mean, it it's, it's up in New Jersey, but uh, it looked like a lot of the scout camps i spent time at i mean completely and the same type of activities except we never had archery i think they didn't trust us with that kind of stuff but you know 
I, I mean, probably with good reason. Oh, oh, totally. Yeah. So, cause probably cause they knew we were watching this kind of stuff, you know, <laughs> but, but you know, the thing it is, it opens with, uh, you know, almost literally Kumbaya by a fireplace. Um, you know, and I think it's ominous that the two people are singing a somewhat religious song, get up to go make out somewhere. And then their fellow counselors sing, hang down your head, Tom Dooley, which is a, <laughs> if you've never listened to the lyrics of that song, folks, that song's messed up. All right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's dark folk music from those. Like go back and listen to that. Y'all it's, it's messed up. Okay. Get, get by the toying and just get into the lyrics. It's pretty screwed up. And, um, you know, I thought, man, we get blood right out of the gate, though. I mean, they're wasting no time on this. And, uh, you know, a music, too, that owes us it's a lot to Psycho, I think. I, I always felt like Harry Manfredini, if, if he was influenced by anything, it was I need to do music cues like Psycho more than the way Halloween was done with John Carpenter. Oh, yeah. He's definitely ripping off the Psycho score. And it also, at times, sounds a little bit like... um Jaws. Yeah, you know, I didn't thought about that, but that's in particular. There's a there's a kill later on where there's a, a knife that's almost swimming towards someone. It feels like, and yeah, it's very Jawsish. So yeah, that's good. But I mean, they're on display right out of the gate here, and I thought, man, how about that freeze frame into the you know the girl's screaming mouth, and then the white, and, and instead of you know framing out of the black, it goes into white, which I was like, that's something that I just don't expect. Like I think for a movie this cheesy, that's a nice little uh, touch that uh, Cunningham and his editor figured out how to do to, to really shock you. It, it's yeah, it's definitely a great like cold opening for your movie. Um, Cause it, right there, it establishes basically what the whole franchise is going to be about. And that's murdering horny teenagers. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, yeah. And, and around this camp in particular, and it's also the particular style of murder. I mean, one thing we'll get is that this, this murderer uses a lots of uh, options to off people with, but the knife seems to be kind of the initial go-to for almost most of them. There's a lot of throat slashes here. A lot of good throat slashes though. Yeah. Yeah. You know, again, Tom does good work on the, on the throat aesthetics, but uh, then we, we flash forward to, you know, the, the girl hitchhiking, I guess just hiking her way into town. I was like, did the, did the bus drop her off in Hackensack? And she just, you know, hit, ride a train over. She just comes from nowhere, you know, and she, and my wife just hysterically said, did she actually ask that dog if it spoke English? And, <laughs> and indeed she did. So, uh, but I think again, if you go into the Friday the 13th movies and you're expecting something else, you're going to be sorely disappointed at the mm, amount of thespian uh, culture here. Yeah, um, it's it's definitely not, um, you know, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer level acting. There's no, there, there's no great performances. There's nothing, uh, you know, it's flat. It's a bunch of flat Stanleys uh, getting yeah. <laughs> splashed up with a pair of scissors. I would even dare say that it's acting on the level of your average Toxic Avenger film. Which is later, but or or your average Golden Globus picture, you know, which of which we've talked about quite a few. But I feel like a lot of these people could have been stand-ins in an American Ninja movie if they'd just hung around for a few more years or known the right people. I, I think a lot of them were just cast based on looks. Oh, completely. Yeah, it's good-looking people. Like Harry Crosby is Bing Crosby's son. Like they didn't even know that was a fact at the time. 
You know, wow. they, they were yeah. like, if we had known that, we would have used that. He didn't want to, you know, say anything about it. He did the Linus thing from uh, Ocean's Eleven. Didn't want to trade in on his dad's name or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, which, by the way, this guy works for uh, like investment banking now, and used to work at Lehman Brothers, which I find is amazing. <laughs> like, well, it's good enough. Friday the Thirteenth did something for him, but uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, it, he, you know, he he got to play naked Monopoly, and he got hung on a door. I mean, that's kind of kind of the whole role. <laughs> He did get to kill the snake, though, so that's that's true. Yeah, and, and Adrienne King basically said she was cast because she was young, nubile, and could scream. Yes, she looked, and I'll tell you right now, too, and nobody admits to it, she looks like a dime store Jamie Lee Curtis. The hair. Oh, the, yeah. The, everything. I mean, like, they're, they're going for the Laurie Strode again. Though, I, I'm going to take notice with something here. Everybody calls her, like, the virgin in terror or whatever. I kind of think like her and Steve have a thing going, you know, like I, I never brought her as the, the virginal, you know, innocent girl. She may be more innocent than some of the other ones or particularly some of the other ones, but I thought like her and Steve had a relationship and that she was just in a weird place in life. And did you get that out of that opening yeah. weird scene where they're nailing the door together or whatever? Yeah, they definitely seem like there's something going on. And even later she joins in on uh naked monopoly. So yeah. clear, clearly she's not that, uh, you know, sheltered. Yeah, not averse to it. I mean, she's out there swimming with all of them in the, you know, the incredibly 70s, you know, stringy two-piece and all that stuff. And, you know, I I don't know. I, I never took her as that. And I'll say this. I kind of like the character more for that because it is less ripoff if you understand it that way. Otherwise, it is just a straight ripoff of Halloween. I mean, it's, it's terrible in, in how plagiarized it is. Well, you know, you got to stick with the formula that works, and clearly that's a formula that worked. And they thought, yeah. "Hey, us too." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, they're they're coming out doing this, and it's it's funny how it's funny how these series will chase each other around. Like all of them eventually start chasing each other, but like at some point, Halloween started chasing Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah, know? Friday the Thirteenth for sure jumps <laughs> jumps into that gap left. I'm going to say by Halloween three. Oh, Halloween yeah. Halloween 3 took that series in a weird direction, and that allowed Friday the 13th and uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street to just kind of step in and take take over the mantle of the slasher. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they both did it, because after after Part 3 of Halloween, which was 1983, they didn't make another one until 1988. So, I mean, and mainly because Friday the 13th is making all of our money. So, again, they start chasing each other as series. So, but we're getting ahead of ourselves there a little bit. I do love the history that the truck driver gives this girl as he's giving her a ride. You know, that we got the boy he drowned in, in 57. We got the two counselors killed in 58. And then we got the poison water in 62. And we got 60, we got several fires that nobody's ever been able to pin anything on. So, automatically, you set up something for me that is also a staple of our lifetime films terrible police. Oh, yeah. This, this is the. The, the, this, these police make the police at Lifetime movies look like, uh, you know, NYPD blue. Oh, yeah. We're going to talk about that cop on the motorcycle in just a minute. So just hold that thought. Cause yeah, I got things for that dude. But you mean the, the, the motorcycle that was clearly just someone's borrowed Honda Goldwing that they yes. stuck police <laughs> on it with some tape? That that guy clearly did not know how to ride. So, oh, no. Because he looked like he was about to go into the lake. 
so <laughs> with it and i'm not too certain he probably didn't at least wreck it at least once so uh, i mean yeah uh, we get more teenagers including a young kevin bacon and i you know i remembered he was in this but i forgot where he comes in i was like good old kevin and uh you know i he had done a few movies at this point i I, I think this, the first thing I ever saw him in was Footloose, but going back through his catalog, of course, I know he's, he had done Animal House and some other yeah, stuff. Yeah. Animal House was, uh, the year before this. So he was already yeah. kind of a thing. Yeah. He was still trying to figure out what he was going to be in Hollywood. And it's amazing to think about, like, if you go look at that guy's filmography, people, he has worked steadily for 30 something years. It's amazing how much this guy has been in and on television and film. And, for better or worse, it always pretty well gives a decent performance. I, I've seen him in some stuff that didn't work as well as others, but I don't know that I've ever seen Kevin Bacon just be bad. No, he's actually, he's really good. Even like in that ridiculous show he had on Fox that I reviewed for Den of Geek, The, uh, following. the following. Yes, yeah. yes. Even in that, right to the very end, he was like what you tuned in for. And he oh, was totally. definitely like carrying the show, especially the the third season with its many questionable decisions, but yeah. yeah uh, but speaking of questionable decisions, how about that uh, banana hammock? Oh yeah. Well, it was the seventies, right? Like this is clearly supposed to be 1978, 79. So, I mean, it's made in, it came out in 1980, but it's supposed to be in the late seventies. Like everything screams seventies about it. Oh, right. Yeah. Right down to the haircuts. Oh, I mean, completely. Yeah. And, and like you said, yes, the, uh, the speedo and, and the whole bit. And, uh, I don't know. I, I kind of kick out of watching this group together though, because they assembled a really gorgeous looking cast who they didn't have any stunt people here. So like all these people had to get out there and actually do stuff at this camp. And you could tell none of these people in their life had ever been to camp. And also, I, and I found out later that the writer never went to camp at any time in his life. So he just was just making this stuff up as they went. And actually, as it turned out, they were writing the script like every day. Like they, like apparently people would go, you don't do that at a camp. You do this. And then the only one that seems to look like he knows what he's doing uh, is Steve Christie, the guy that plays Steve. Um, who is, I mean, you talk about a guy that is stuck in 1976. Uh, he's, he's sort of like, I called him like a knockoff Richard Dreyfus, the way Dreyfus played the character in Jaws, like the Matt Hooper. Yeah, I, he's definitely given off that vibe for sure. Another, another, rip, another thing they can rip off from a better movie. <laughs> exactly, but he also looks like he would have wound up like on on a train in Death Wish or something. Like he just looks like one of those guys. He's always got his shirt off, right? But you know, he could eat a burger or two. You know, and I I don't know. It's just it's funny to watch him. Um, my wife got a big kick out of his huge wool socks that he's wearing, and uh, and I'm like, well, you know, if you're doing some hiking, that does make some sense. But chopping wood, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe he just wanted to look Jeremiah Johnson style for everybody. I don't know. It's it was the time of the Swiss Family Robinson and all that crap on television, right? So I mean, we were we were doing that. We had to relate to these people in some way. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's definitely a good uh, choice. I, it, it's really hard to get past how everyone looks. <laughs> I just really. I struggle with it the entire time because it's a lot of short shorts. It it dates the movie in a way that, like, I don't know that other horror movies' first franchise entry does. Like, I don't know that the way everyone dresses in Nightmare on Elm Street dates them terribly. Maybe Johnny Depp with that midriff thing. But everybody else kind of just dresses in a nondescript way. Halloween, they all kind of look like they shopped at the softer side of Sears, you know. But it, it doesn't... <laughs> 
take me out of it. These people, though, yes, this is horrible. I don't know who did the. Well, they probably had no costume budget, so yeah, this is probably the stuff <laughs> yeah. they wore. Too. Yeah, it's probably like, do you have any rugged clothes you can bring that you don't mind us getting a lot of Cairo syrup on? So and, I yeah. mean, that that's probably was part of the gig was you had to bring your own clothes, but um, I can imagine that. But let me ask you one thing about Alice though before we start getting into kills because that that does happen pretty quick here as we start out with things. Any clues that she's final girl? I don't know. She doesn't necess- she doesn't necessarily come across like the the stereotypical final girl. She seems a little too I mean, she seems like she has dated people before. Right. And then she's got like a story that we never know the end to. Like, I've got something in California I've got to go take care of. It, that's that's straight a lift out of Psycho, right? Like, that's Marion Crane. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's that's definitely uh, that's definitely where they got that. And, and it adds a, a, like a weird layer of mysteriousness to her. Like, is she going out there to like negotiate some kind of coke buy? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, that's that's what I wondered is what what was she a stripper? I mean, did, you know, I don't know. You know, we we don't know Alice's story, and I'll just say now we never know it. Okay, because there wasn't one. Okay, and I'm kind of glad they never bothered to explain it. This is the kind of thing that I, I credit a new screenwriter who didn't really know what he was doing with some. Uh, good for you for not overthinking it, not getting on Overthink Island, as uh, Brett Easton Ellison likes to call it sometimes. <laughs> don't don't overexplain it. Just go with it, and just it's fine. And I I'm, I liked it though, cause, but I, I had never really like noticed that about her that she has that drop line and she talks about that. But I'm going, you know, that the only thing that makes you think she could be Final Girl is that she's the only one of these people that has any kind of like layer to their character beyond like crazy ned who's always asking for it <laughs> you know oh, right yeah i mean he is i mean he's always asking for it he shoots the arrow at the girl who's setting up the archery range which i'm like oh no you would die then like that would no we would not be playing around with that and then he's, he's screwing around doing something else and uh, you know um th- he's the one that, that has any sort of depth everybody else is pretty cardboard at this point yeah, he's he's definitely uh, he's he's probably not the first person to embody this trope, but he's definitely one of the most prominent. I can't wait for this guy to die. Right, right. People, and that's going to become a stock character in all these movies. There's always going to be someone where you're like, oh man, I can't wait till Jason cuts that guy's head off. <laughs> exactly. Like people started going to the movies for that. At some point, you wait on that. But in this one, you looking back, you look at it and go, well, he got it clearly because he was really annoying. <laughs> You know, and he just kept pissing everybody off. And then it was poor guy. He got killed off screen too, which is terrible. Like we didn't even see him killed, but there are three of those. Yeah. They kill, uh, they kill a lot more people off screen in this one than you would expect. I can only drop that to the fact that like whatever effects they had for it just didn't work or they just didn't have time and money for it. I I don't know, but uh, they, they kill like half the cast off screen. Yeah, well, they, they they spent all their money on, like, chest wax for Kevin Bacon. <laughs> Clearly, right? So, Well, 20 minutes in, though, we get our first kill. Annie, the supposed cook who talks to dogs and asks if they speak English, um, so she's jingoistic, too, but also very idealistic. You know, I love that line she's got, when you've had a dream as long as I've had, you'll do anything. And I'm like, what is your dream again to work with 
inner city children in a camp? <laughs> I was like, who dreams that? I, I don't know. Maybe it was the time in the 70s. Maybe I'm just too old to be into social non-activism anymore. But that seems like the kind of thing that Eli Roth would use to get you killed in a movie nowadays. Oh, yeah, for sure. And it definitely seems like a holdover of the hippie murder Got, gotta be, yeah. Genre, yeah. Yeah, it's got, it's gotta be part of that. But I love, you know, she's in this Jeep, and we don't know who's driving this Jeep ever, right? And she basically jumps out of it because she realizes this person is not taking her to where she wants to go, and she gets chased through the woods, and then we get the, the great, you know, throat slash effect on her. Right. And, and, you know, in hindsight, we can figure out who's doing the throat cutting, but, there's, this town is full of like weird looking people. Yeah, can we call the, like if there was a subtitle for this one, it would be Friday the Thirteenth: The Red Herring. You know, because <laughs> I mean, like it, the guy at the diner, the old woman at the diner, the truck driver guy that even smiles once but gives a uh, you know a knowing wink about things. You've got Crazy Ralph, who we haven't even talked about yet, but you know, Mister Death Cuss himself. And and then you've also got Steve, who just, you know, shows up chopping wood, puts people to work like the minute he meets them and then leaves for the day. So you don't and he drives a Jeep. So you don't know And there's all these misdirections. And it is we'll talk about whether or not if it's a big cheat or not at the end when Mrs. Voorhees is revealed. But, yeah, it, it is it is a, a lot of uh, whodunit, right? Yeah, it's and it's and it's kind of a it's kind of weird um, in retrospect that they go so far out of their way to muddy the waters. Um, I I think they they are doing that, though, to try and build some suspense. And I don't know if that was done in editing by Bill Frieda or if that was intentional in the script. I kind of feel like that would have been a post-production decision based on how, like, flimsy this was put together anyway, is that they say, there's no tension in this movie. We've got to build tension somehow. So they figured out how to cut it to make it feel like it could have been anybody. Yeah, that, it it definitely feels like a, a decision made in the editing room because it. I'm I'm going to go out ahead and say that the Mrs. Voorhees reveal doesn't make any sense because this is a yeah. frail, sixty-five year old woman who's supposedly ramming arrows through people's throats and, and and hanging them on the building and yeah young and not only ramming you know arrows through people's throats ramming arrows through like young virile in shape people like these people are not lazy they look good they've all got muscles they're they're athletic we see them pull a dang boat in for goodness sakes you know? yeah and, and drag the dock out yeah, I mean th- these people are in shape. Like they're not. Yeah, that that is it is weird to watch your, you know, maybe younger grandmother when you were growing up kicking somebody's ass. But you know, I that's what we were being led to believe is that this fifty-something-year-old woman is doing this. Well, I mean they they had to shoot around like uh, Betsy Palmer for most of the the chase scenes and stuff because she wasn't like physically able to do them. Yeah, no, like, yeah, she wasn't even doing heavy. I think she's only in really the, I, I don't believe she's in any scene except the very end ones where her and Adrian King are like fighting each other, where they have to be careful not to actually hit each other with frying pans because they're real. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. so, and, and that, you know, I'll give them credit for figuring that out, you know, and being able to work through that. She puts on good fights at the end. We'll get to her in a minute, but let's do the pickoff here though, because we, we get Annie's kill, right? We've talked about how Ned clearly is asking 
for it. And uh, the snake kill's been talked about to death. We don't have to do that. But I love the local cop, though, that stops by before all the drama begins. You, you called him out, the Honda Goldwing that they borrowed from somebody. This guy is hilarious because we've already got one prophet of doom. Why do we need two? Yeah, uh, Officer Dorf. <laughs> That's his name, Officer Dorf. But he's not Tim Conway. I wish it was Tim Conway because immediately have been righteous, yeah, immediately better movie. <laughs> they By probably couldn't. A lot. Af- they couldn't afford Tim Conway. Let's not kid ourselves. No way. The Carol Burnett show is probably the budget on that is probably twice what this is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, but yeah, he's definitely shows up to be an, another prophet of doom. I guess because they thought we wouldn't get it. At this point, or just because they had this guy hanging around and they thought, well, let's put him on screen. I wonder what the impetus was to put this guy out there because his he has the great line though we ain't gonna stand for no weirdness out here. (laughs) Yeah, smoking the the reefer or whatever it was. Um, before he he goes into the whole um. Oh. oh yeah, look the yeah, the Colombian gold, man. You know, he's he's so square. Which is, yeah, like, he he's straight out of Reefer Madness. He's a Reefer Madness yes. stock character. Yes, exactly. He's a Reefer Madness stock character and he's he's pointless. We never see him again. Like he just he comes and goes, I wanted him to like get cut off the motorcycle or something. I'm sure they had no money for that at all. But uh that's what would happen today. Like that guy would be like, you know, beheaded as he drives by. And in fact I think they do that in one of the later movies, if I'm not, you know, forgetting correctly. But but yeah, you have him and all the, the, the strangeness there. And then we really get down to business. Like Jack and Marcy go to get it on, right? And we mm-hmm. see this great reveal as they're, you know, going down below there. <laughs> Ned's dead body is laying on the top bunk. And I'm like, how do you walk into a room with bunk beds and not notice someone on the top bunk? Yeah. I I mean, I had bunk beds in college. I don't yeah. think I ever walked in and, and didn't notice someone laying there at eye level. Right. I mean, throat, that, throat cut or not. I know. I'm like, were the lights off? Or I mean, it didn't look dark in there. I thought, no, that ain't. Th- they've already solved that. They turned the generator on. So I was like, I don't. I don't get well, those maybe they were just so into each other that they just couldn't stop to notice the bloody body up above them, right? But uh, Yeah, yeah, sure. We'll we'll say that. Well, that's what the story wants you to believe, but it's it's baloney because it is so dumb. I mean, we know it's dumb, but but I mean, check, check it out though. We do get great kill though. That arrow through the neck with with uh, Kevin Bacon, that's an awesome effect. Yeah, that is probably the the most like famous effect in the movies. And, like, that's one of the at least top three kills in the whole uh, the whole Friday the 13th universe, to me, anyway. Well, you see it in all the, like, clip reels uh, from the movies. Like, when they start talking Friday the 13th and they talk this first one, you almost always see the Kevin Bacon kill. Like, it's it's just one that it stands out. And, and do you remember those, uh, like montage DVDs that would put out in like the early 2000s. Oh yeah, the Boogeyman DVDs or whatever. Yes, and this was always like front and center. Oh yeah, uh, like I think this was on Terror in the Isles that Donald Pleasant hosted and that uh, um if anybody's listened to the old Shocktober shows, we ripped off like his audio from that for that. So yeah, <laughs> I mean, well, we didn't rip it off. We used it in the intro for so that's where that's from if y'all want to know what that is, but yeah, no, I remember that too. It's it's definitely 
you know, clip worthy. I mean, it's great. And Marcy's kill with the axe to the head is awesome. You see the axe hit the, the thing and then come back and it's just her falling backward. You never see the axe actually hit her because it's, you know, because they just pasted it to her, but it still looks awesome and it's, it's effective. I mean, I, I will say that knowing what we know about the killer, I'm like, Mrs. Voorhees has got some like country strength or something. Yeah. She's definitely got, uh, well, I mean, it's not old man strength, but no, I mean, she's like Duck Dynasty strong or something. You know, yeah, she's one of those people coming after you. She's like one of those uh, the little wizened like Chinese monk that you see dragging a a, a semi trailer by his teeth or whatever. She's one of those, yeah. or she's Yoda in Attack of the Clones, who just all of a sudden becomes the springboard of energy in a great lightsaber fight. But uh, yeah, so now I've got my Star Wars reference in for the night, but. <laughs> Alice, Brenda, and Bill, though, decide to play Strip Monopoly, the rules of which are completely undefined. Monopoly is the longest board game on the planet. I don't know why anyone would do a strip version of it unless you really wanted to tease that out. Yeah, the only thing I think that would be longer than Strip Monopoly would be, like, Strip Axis and Allies. (laughs) Yes, something along those lines. Or maybe uh, Strip Risk. Yeah, Strip Risk. Uh, Yes, yes. Strip Battle of the Congo, something. So, uh, strip Settlers of Catan. <laughs> there we go. Strip, I'm sure somewhere in a college campus, those things exist. So I don't need to know. But yes, yeah, Strip Monopoly is going to be the thing. And I found nothing in any of the behind of who came up with that. You know, if where they came up with that idea, if one of the actors said, eh, we'll just make it Strip Monopoly, you know, what, I don't know. It's, it's funny to me to, to think about that, like, there was a decision made to go, yeah, we'll go Strip Monopoly. And at some point, someone had to go, do we need to explain how this works? Nah, just show a couple of them with their shirts off later. Well, you know? You, you know what it is, right? There's, you cannot go into any home, cabin, office, building without there being a, Monopoly board with half the stuff missing. Exactly. Yes. There's, yeah, I think even one of them even says, where are all my hundreds or something like that. So yeah. I think they just found this Monopoly thing in the cabin where they were shooting and decided, hey, you know what? We'll, we'll work with it. Right. That, clearly. So they also found the rain machine to end all rain machines or rainstorm to end all rainstorm, depending on how you want to look at it. Because, I mean, it starts coming down. <laughs> out there and yeah uh, are we sure that this wasn't supposed to be south florida because it's definitely like monsoon i mean yeah weather it, it is serious rain like rain sideways kind of rain drenching it's amazing that like the whole set wasn't completely flooded by the end of this thing um but it well you know what though i'll say looks good it's hard to it's hard to shoot a cheap movie with rain and at least one thing they clearly had they had at least one good light and somebody knew how to operate it in the dark because so much of this movie is in the dark but i had no time am i ever squinting going what was that you know like it they they used the light really smartly here it's yeah it's it's actually surprisingly clear um I, I i have that trouble with a lot of movies today even movies that you know cost what this movie made uh and in the box offices to to make and it's still everything's just black and muddled probably because they're trying to hide some dodgy looking cgi <laughs> well yeah i go back to comments i made when reviewing aliens versus predator requiem 
Um, and the reason that movie is so dark, it's not your DVD transfer. It's because it looks cheap. So, and they don't want you to see that they stapled, uh, some dreadlocks onto a predator. So, and that, that's all. And onto an alien costume. I mean, that's all they do in that movie. So, but you know, this one looks good, but the pickoff continues. We get Brenda lured out to the archery range and we hear a scream, but we, again, an off screen kill. We find out later she's, I don't even know how she she dies, right? Like she's just thrown through a window, tied up with some rope later. So. Yeah, she's just found. She's just she's, she's mystery. Bloody. She yeah. dies under mysterious circumstances. Right, she's bloody. Um, Alice and Bill do find the bloody axe in her bed, and no one else. So the axe to kill Marcy is is you know placed there. So like I, I saw somewhere online where like somebody made like a little map of like everywhere Mrs. Voorhees went to kill people and take out this crew. And if you follow it, it actually makes sense. Like there's no like weird doubling back or anything. It's like the kills all happen in a logical fashion. So whoever like, you know, whatever person on the production crew made sure that that worked Bravo, because otherwise, like if you start to apply any amount of thinking to these things, usually they fall apart. But in this case, no, it actually makes sense the way that everybody gets taken out and and the way they find them. Let's not pretend that that was a conscious decision. I think that was just the happy end res- accident. I think that was just the end result of well, we've got three buildings, <laughs> we have to shoot them from every possible angle. I think so you're, you're probably right. So. It's not like she's going from town into you know she's not running you know she's not running marathons here. She's just walking between the three buildings that they could shoot at. <laughs> True, true. It's probably just one of those great happy accidents that low budget pictures often you know, stumble upon that works well, like the barrels and jaws or the the little light effects in Halloween, things like that. You know, but uh, it works. I, I I like it. And again, when you're watching something you've seen before and you're trying to do any kind of review for it, I'm, I'm looking at this going like, well, you know, this kind of makes sense how everything goes down. It it works. Uh, but God, does it stretch on forever? Like I feel like the last 35 minutes of this film are really like 12 minutes that have been stretched beyond all comparison it's stretch armstrong yeah and it's weird because i mean people were more forgiving of like a 80 minute movies back then i know that's why that's why i'm surprised like why to push to try to make this so long i don't i don't get it because it there's no i don't think there would have been any shame in it uh being you know short and tight uh, that's the one thing i'll say is that the third act of this movie doesn't really have a lot of like tension like third act should go quick right like it should it shouldn't go lifetime quick but it should go quick and this one like starts and then stops and it starts a little bit more and it stops again and it's, it doesn't know how to like keep that tension going and i think that's best you know understood when we finally get alice alone like bill goes to look at the generator and then that's where presumably we he gets killed because he gets killed off screen too and alice is all alone and she does what i call the end of halloween where she finds the bodies you know, and and unlike the end of Halloween, where that paces up to the moment where the killer starts chasing the girl, then it just drops into she starts screaming and talking to someone we've never met, and we have exposition time. Yeah, it it if it feels like that they came up with this the exposition of this well after they shot the rest of the movie, and then they decided, oh, okay, let's figure out a way to shoehorn this all in. 
I, I think they came up with their answer and their killer as they were making this. And then they were like, well, okay, how can we explain all this? Okay. So she's going to have to have this scene where we actually convince people that the girl that's left alive, the one survivor would take time to stop and listen to someone she's never met after she's seen all of her friends butchered, that she would trust a stranger. And I guess because the stranger's Betsy Palmer and she doesn't look like she could harm a fly, we go with it. But yeah, it's, it's like, it's like, Hey, you ever seen Psycho? Yeah. Well, what if the mom was a real person and not just a skeleton in a dress? Right. Like, what if she was a crazy killer person and and completely loses her mind? I will say this for Betsy Palmer's performance. She gives it her all. She called this script complete crap when she read it, and she was not wrong. This is a terrible thing, but she delivers these lines with pure, straight gusto. Like, she could have played it really hammy, and I and according to her, Sean Cunningham's the one that told her to play it straight and play it like she was on Leave it to Beaver. And then it was just completely normal what she was saying. And there is a little bit of, of like tension and terror that comes from that. The fact that she seems so like, this is what, this is what you're supposed to do. You know, <laughs> he should have been watched. He should be taken care of. And then she just, you know, goes completely bonkers on Alice. Yeah. It, it actually uh, made me think of something from the most recent episode of Game of Thrones. Arya Stark is watching them do, uh, watching a, cr- a group of actors do like scenes that she has already lived through. Uh, hmm. Like, like she watches him behead uh, her, a stand in for her father. Like, and one of the things she tells um, the actress who plays uh, the fake version of Cersei Lannister, she says, you know, you play it like Cersei said, but this is her son. This is her only son. She's not going to be sad. She's going to be angry. And, and that just kind of helps. That, that just, that just came to me as I was watching this again. Like, well, that explains why she starts going bananas. This is her only kid. And, right. and if you've ever read the, uh, the backstory that Betsy Palmer uh, made up for her character, uh, it makes a lot of sense because basically she's like, well, you know, she got pregnant out of wedlock and her and she's a single mother and she had to work all these jobs to support her son. And then, you know, after she got herself in trouble by screwing around as a teenager, these other screwing around teenagers kill her son. So that's why she has this hate on for fornicators. See, and if they could have only like that have been like three lines they could have worked into all of this and it would have made it work so much better because I'm with you. Her coming out and telling all this, I'm like, what, what, who are you again? It's so out of left field. I get it. I, I get the basic motivation of it, but it's so ham-fistedly done that it, it undercuts it again if you start applying a little too much sunlight to it. Yeah, it, it, but at least they tried to, to give her yeah. motivation. Well, they did, but you know what? Again, I, I've always argued that if you have too much motivation for the horror killer, like, doesn't that ruin it in a lot of ways? Like, once you learn all of it, it's kind of, it's too much in some ways. Like, th- at some point, you just need it to be a force after you. Yeah, which is probably why they 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 rectified that mistake in the second movie. Well, I, well, and but you know, they've always gone from the operation that they were picked on. You know, like that's the thing with you. Know, one of the big differences in the in the two franchises we're talking about here this fall is Freddy was just a bad guy. 
who did some really awful stuff in a legal loophole that got him free. And then the parents went all death wish on him, you know, but he, but he wasn't like a nice person ahead of time. Michael Myers was a psychotic. And, and if you believe some of the canon was controlled by druids. So, you know, there's that. And, and Pinhead was, you know, uh, used to be an army colonel or whatever and he was into sadomasochism and opened the wrong box so you know but he was it wasn't like he was a good guy so i mean that's the thing is like we're supposed to feel sorry for these people in some way and i don't i'm like no i want alice to whip you and when they go extreme rules on each other i will give them credit again for going at each other there's a good like fight like I, i enjoyed the way that they beat each other up running around that cabin and on that beach yeah, uh, if, uh, Betsy Palmer definitely earned her paycheck for that stuff. She she definitely earned the uh, the new car she bought with the money she made for this movie. <laughs> yeah, because that's the, the because story, it's definitely yeah. for for somebody of her age, that's a lot of physical activity, and they it, it and she looks like she's doing most of it. Oh yeah, there's no stunt person. This, that's her. She's falling to the ground. She's doing all of that stuff. She's, you know, she actually even hit Adrian King a couple times because she comes from theater where you actually slap people. You oh, know? Nice. And like, apparently Adrian King looked lost her mind. Like, what are you doing? And Sean Cunningham had to go, no, you just have to swing at the camera. Like, it's okay. You don't have to really hit her. So it's, uh, and I'm like, man, you couldn't have brought in a couple of wrestlers to show them how it's done or something. Just, so, uh, yeah, uh, just hire the fabulous movie. Love to be uh, uh, the stunt double for Betsy Palmer. Uh, at that time, she probably was actually busy, but that's not a terrible idea. So <laughs> that would have worked. But no, I like the fight though, and of course, we talked about that great ending. I mean, the and it's and I love the use of the slow mo there. It's cheesy as heck, but I like when she grabs that machete and starts running at Betsy Palmer, and Betsy Palmer's face is like, "Uh oh, so <laughs> like that, that's going to end badly for me." And then the great head chop, and I I'll say too, man, that whole like hands gripping the air, like you meddling kids, you know, I I like that sort of Scooby Doo ish part of it. Yeah, it it definitely feels Scooby Doo, and and it, and it is a lot of fun because that is a really amusing uh, special effect right there. That is a great practical. It uh, is, and I'll I'll tell you. I mean, I've heard more than one person tell me they saw that at way too young of an age, and it messed them up. And I can see why. It looks. I've never seen a head decapitated in real life. I don't want to, but it looks oddly similar to what I think that would look like. Like it's well, it's good. I, yeah, and I'm fairly sure Tom Savini, being a, a combat photographer in Vietnam, ha- has seen that kind of stuff before. And I know True. that he he always took he always takes pride in in making his special effects be as realistic as you know feasible with the budget. I I can believe that you know Sex Machine is not playing around when he gets a hold of the makeup case. So there's no doubt about that. So the the man the man does good work. But the the ending here is though where I go and I know they put it in because they felt like they needed one more scare. And I was like, yeah, you know, after a night of mayhem and you know murder, I just want to go on a canoe ride in the morning because reasons like they you know it makes no sense at all and what we find out is that this is a dream right but it's such a it's such a jump out of the seat moment when jason comes up out of the water and grabs her yeah and it's definitely uh they definitely saw carrie and decided hey we could do that <laughs> yeah i think i think that's exactly what they wanted is one more scare and that's that's what they went for was the the carrie moment or it's the if you continue the the plagiarism it's michael myers is not on the ground now so we we have to go with that but it's more shocking it's not as uh you know subtle as that is 
I'm a little surprised that they didn't end up with some kind of Donald Pleasance type figure. Well, I think that's the sheriff at the end who's going, ma'am, we didn't find any boy. You know, when she's talking about, well, what happened to the boy that got me in the lake? And he's like, we didn't find any boy. Yeah, I think that's what mm. that's supposed to be. And she goes, well, he must still be out there. And then she gives that long look into the camera and it fades into the, you know, the lake or whatever. And I thought, wow. So, um, which I will say this though, Sean Cunningham may have learned a lot of things from Wes Craven. He did not learn nature shooting from him because <laughs> this had none of those good nature shots from last house on the left um, <laughs> that we talked about, which may be the only redeemable part of that film. But, uh, yeah, so no, it ends with her in a hospital and, uh, you know, the mystery and, uh, yeah, it ends with the, uh, Halloween two ending. <laughs> well, yeah, it leaves, well, you know, the Halloween, the Halloween two, two beginning, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, we're going to, we're going to end it where, uh, the other one actually goes, but uh, oddly enough, but I, you know, I, again, they set it up and it started making money. And it, I mean, when when they screened it, that's the thing that blows my mind is like studios started going yes, like Warner and Paramount started. We'll put money, we'll distribute this all over the world. We'll put marketing behind it, and these people are like, really? So I mean, like Sean Cunningham still talks about it to this day as if like I couldn't believe they would take this you know zero star B rate horror movie and push it out worldwide. But okay. You know, he said, I wasn't going to turn it down. So uh, and good on him for not doing it. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, it became a, a massive cultural touchstone. Do you think the movie would have been as successful if they'd gone with the uh, original title, A Long Night at Camp Blood? Heaven no. <laughs> I, th- I think that the right idea was, let's find another day, holiday, something to rip off. Everybody was doing this at this point. Like, we, we had them all. Like, My Bloody Valentine. We, this is before April Fool's Day, but it's right in that same line. We started doing all that. I, had New Year's Evil happened yet? I, I think that may have been a year or two later. But uh, uh, I think Silent, Di- Silent Night, Deadly Night was around that time. Yeah, Silent Night, Deadly Night, the first one. Um, which, you know, that movie got protested for <laughs> all manner of reasons. But, uh, no. No, I, I I don't think it would have worked. I I do think it's the, again, it's that genius of not overthinking it. Of let's find a simple concept and a simple idea, and you kind of believe you can't believe nobody else thought of it. Nobody else grabbed Halloween before. Nobody else grabbed uh, Friday the Thirteenth. Okay, we'll go with it. Uh, even though critics like completely shunned this, like panned it, and still still talk about it like it's garbage, like they don't care. Like the people that made this do not care because they're like, yeah, you see my car, it's really nice. See my house, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, like they, Gene they really don't. Siskel went and told people the movie's twist ending, right. so they so they wouldn't watch it. And he also called like he also called Sh- Sean Cunningham like a de- detestable piece of garbage. I know. I'm like, like, they got like really high on the righteous indignation with this one, man. It was funny. So, uh, it's in, you know, you watch it and we're sitting here talking about it like it's a Muppets episode because it seems so tame. I mean, compared to like, you know, I just started watching the show Hannibal and I know I'm behind on that and it's, you know, no, no longer exists or whatever, but I just started watching it. And like the first four episodes of that, I'm like, that's way more violent than anything I just watched in Friday the 13th. Like, not even, not even close like that is so creepy and uh compared to this this seems so safe yeah and 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 tame even by the standards of friday the 13th's future like releases right and i do think that this sets the bar for we got to go bigger and better every time like they start doing that more blood more blood we'll we'll get into that as we go but i think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to get final thoughts recommendations and popcorn ratings so ron what are yours for friday the 13th 
it's it's noteworthy for being the the movie that kicked off the series, but to me, it, it well, it's a good movie, and I'd give it you know a medium to large popcorn somewhere in between, uh, maybe a large that you spilled a little bit out of it. Um, it, it it's not it, it's a Friday the Thirteenth movie, but it's not what everyone wants from a Friday the Thirteenth movie. There's a lot of great moments in it. But the fact that you don't get Jason and you don't get the hockey mask that are that is what the series is known for in retrospect makes it feel a little bit disappointing. But you know, the Tom, uh, Tom Savini has some great special effects. You know, it, it, the the actors are not good, but they feel like real camp counselor types. Not that I ever went to camp, but, you know, they feel like dumb teenagers. And, and, you know, there's a lot to be said for how this movie took from every other proto-slasher film and created a template that the movies are still basically following to this day. You know, I think you've summed it up really well there. For me, this is one of those that feels like a lot like horror homework kind of movie. You know, like you, at some point, if you you want to be a horror fan, you probably should see this, and and think about it. But like I said earlier, it's more of a prelude of what's to come. So I don't know that it's like you know absolutely quintessential. I do think for what it is and the way it was made and the circumstances surrounding it. They did a lot with very little with what they had, and more or less it works. The third act drags on a little too long. It could have used a little tightening, but again, nobody knew what they were even making, and nobody cared. It was so cheap. They just thought they were going to do a quick turnaround on it, and they had no idea they were making a you know thirty something million dollar franchise at the time is what what it initially came out to it was like thirty four million dollars. So they had no idea, and if they had, they would have maybe taken a little more you know care with it. But as it is. It's fine. It's not grand. I'll give it a medium popcorn, but that kind of like good medium popcorn that's still not, you know, nasty the next day or whatever, but still gives you something. There's something here, but I don't know how important any of it is. Like if you're trying to keep up with what's important in the series, like almost none of it, I guess. Maybe knowing Jason had a mother, but that only gets explained to you about nine more times. So, and the fact that like all this other stuff about her, like that she didn't have any other kids and stuff. Oh, we're going to get back to that too. So, you know, they... There's a lot more to, to be discussed in this series for sure, but not a bad starting point. I, I think that's the thing, but it's not the strong start that most of these horror franchises have, like Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street and Hellraiser and stuff like that. Yeah, it's the it's the weird outlier that kind of finds its feet um, yeah, it, as it, it, it goes along. Yeah, it is almost the Halloween 3 of it, if it didn't, again, have direct ties to where the, the series goes. But we'll get into more of that next time around. Of course, folks, you can find all the uh, episodes of our uh, podcast on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies. Find links to our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Follow us there. Leave us a review on iTunes. We appreciate your support. Until next time, for Ron, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121.